When Nobby had gone, Vimes reached behind the desk and picked up a faded copy of Twerp's Peerage, or as he personally thought of it, the Guide to the Criminal Classes. You wouldn't find slum dwellers in these pages, but you would find their landlords. And while it was regarded as pretty good evidence of criminality to be living in a slum, for some reason owning a whole street of them merely got you invited to the very best social occasions. These days they seem to be bringing out a new edition every week. Dragon had been right about one thing at least. Everyone in Aunt Morpork seemed to be hankering after more arms than they were born with. He looked up de nobs. There even was a damn coat of arms. One supporter of the shield was a hippo, presumably one of the royal hippos of Ark Morpork and therefore the ancestor of Roderick and Keith. The other was a bull of some sort, with a very knobby-like expression. It was holding a golden ark, which this being the Dunobba's coat of arms, it had probably stolen from somewhere. The shield was red and green. There was a white chevron with five apples on it. Quite what they had to do with warfare was unclear. Perhaps they were some kind of jolly visual pun, or play on words that had had them slapping their thighs down at the Royal College of Arms, although probably if Dragon slapped his thigh too hard, his leg would fall off. It was easy enough to imagine an ennobled Nobs, because where Nobby went wrong was in thinking small. He sidled into places and pinched things that weren't worth much. If only he'd sidled into continents and stolen entire cities, slaughtering many of the inhabitants in the process, he'd have been a pillar of the community. There was nothing in the book under Vimes. Suffer not injustice, Vimes, wasn't a pillar of the community. He killed a king with his own hands. It needed doing, but the community, whatever that was, didn't always like the people who did what needed to be done or said what had to be said. He put some other people to death as well, that was true, but the city had been lousy. There'd been a lot of stupid wars. We were practically part of the Clatchian Empire. Sometimes you needed a bastard. History had wanted surgery. Sometimes Dr. Chopper is the only surgeon to hand. There's something final about an axe. But kill one wretched king, and everyone calls you a regicide. It wasn't as if it was a habit or anything. Vimes had found old Stoneface's journal in the Unseen University Library. The man had been hard, no doubt about that. But they were hard times. He'd written, In the fires of struggle, let us bake new men who will naughty heed the old lies. But the old lies had won in the end. He said to people, You're free! And they said, Hooray! And then he showed them what freedom costs, and they called him a tyrant. And as soon as he'd been betrayed, they milled around a bit like barn-bred chickens who've seen the big world outside for the first time, and then they went back into the warm and shut the door. Vimes sighed and pulled out his organiser. Yes! Memo! Appointment with bootmaker, 2pm, said the imp. It's not two o'clock yet, and that was Tuesday in any case, said Vimes. So I'll cross it off the list of things to do, then. Vimes put the disorganised organiser back in his pocket and went and looked out of the window again. Who had a motive for poisoning Lord Vetinari? No, that wasn't the way to crack it. Probably if you went to some outlying area of the city and confined your investigations to little old ladies who didn't get out much, what with all the wallpaper over the door and everything, you might be able to find someone without a motive. But the man stayed alive by always arranging matters so that a future without him represented a riskier business than a future with him still upright. The only people, therefore, who'd risk killing him were madmen, and the gods knew Ankh-Morpork had enough of them, 
or someone who was absolutely confident that if the city collapsed, he'd be standing on top of the pile. If Fred were right, and the sergeant was generally a good indicator of how the man in the street thought, because he was the man in the street, then that person was Captain Carrot. But Carrot was one of the few people in the city who seemed to like Vetinari. Of course, there was one other person who stood to gain. Damn, thought Vimes. It's me, isn't it? There was another knock at the door. He didn't recognise this one. He opened the door cautiously. It's me, sir, Littlebottom. Come in, then. It was nice to know there was at least one person in the world with more problems than him. How is his lordship? Stable, said Littlebottom. Dead is stable, said Vimes. I mean, he's alive, sir, and sitting up reading. Mr Donut made up some sticky stuff that tasted of seaweed, sir, and I mixed up some glue-bull salts. Sir, you know the old man in the house on the bridge? What old... Oh, yes. It seemed a long time ago. What about him? Well, you asked me to look round, and I took some pictures. This is one, sir. He handed Vimes a rectangle that was nearly all black. Odd. Where'd you get it? Uh, have you ever heard the story about dead men's eyes, sir? Assume I haven't had a literary education, little bottom. Well, they say, who say? They say, sir. You know, they. The same people who are everyone in Everyone Knows. The people who live in the community. Yes, sir, I suppose so, sir. Vimes waved a hand. Oh, them. Well, go on. They say that the last thing a dying man sees stays imprinted in his eyes, sir. Oh, that. That's just an old story. Yes, amazing, really. I mean, if it weren't true, you'd have thought it wouldn't have survived, wouldn't you? I thought I saw this little red spark, so I got the imp to paint a really big picture before it faded completely. And right in the centre... Couldn't the imp have made it up, said Vimes, staring at the picture again. They haven't got the imagination to lie, sir. What they see is what you get. Glowing eyes. Two red dots, said Littlebottom, conscientiously, which might indeed be a pair of glowing eyes, sir. Good point, Littlebottom, Vimes rubbed his chin. Blast! I just hope it's not a god of some sort. That's all I need at a time like this. Can you make copies so I can send them to all the watchhouses? Yes, sir. The imp's got a good memory. Hop to it, then. But before Littlebottom could go, the door opened again. Vimes looked up. Carrot and Angua were there. Carrot, I thought you were on your day off. We found a murder, sir, at the Dwarf Bread Museum, but when we got back to the watch house, they told us Lord Vetinari's dead. Did they? thought Vimes. That's rumour for you. If we could modulate it with truth, how useful it could be. He's breathing well for a corpse, he said. I think he'll be OK. Someone got past his guard, that's all. I've got a doctor to see him, don't worry. Someone got past his guard, he thought. Yes, and I'm his guard. I hope the man's a leader in the field, that's all I can say, said Carrot severely. He's even better than that, he's the doctor to the leaders of the field, said Vimes. I'm his guard, and I didn't see it coming. It'd be terrible for the city if anything happened to him, said Carrot. Vimes saw nothing but innocent concern behind Carrot's forthright stare. It would, wouldn't it, he said. Anyway, it's under control. You said there's been another murder. 
At the Dwarf Bread Museum, someone killed Mr Hopkinson with his own bread. Made him eat it? Hit him with it, sir, said Carrot reproachfully. Battle bread, sir. Is he the old man with the white beard? Yes, sir, you remember, I introduced you to him when I took you to see the Boomerang Biscuit Exhibition. Angua thought she saw a faint wince of recollection speed guiltily across Vimes's face. Who's going around killing old men? he said to the world at large. Don't know, sir. Constable Angua went plain clothes. Carrot waggled his eyebrows conspiratorially and couldn't find a sniff of anyone, and nothing was taken. This is what it was done with. The battle bread was much larger than an ordinary loaf. Vimes turned it over gingerly. Dwarfs throw it like a discus, right? Yes, sir. At the Seven Mountains Games last year, Snorri Shieldbiter took the tops off a line of six hard-boiled eggs at fifty yards, sir, and that was with just a standard hunting loaf. But this is... well, it's a cultural artefact. We haven't got the baking technology for bread like this any more. It's unique. Valuable? Very, sir. Worth stealing? You'd never be able to get rid of it. Every honest dwarf would recognise it. Hmm. Did you hear about that priest being murdered on Misbegot Bridge? Carrot looked shocked. Not old Father Tubal, check. Really? Vimes stopped himself from asking, You know him, then? Because Carrot knew everyone. If Carrot were to be dropped into some dense tropical jungle, it'd be, Hello, Mr. Runs Swiftly Through the Trees. Good morning, Mr. Talks to the Forest. What a splendid blowpipe. And what a novel place for a feather. Did he have more than one enemy? said Vimes. Sorry, sir? Why more than one? I should say the fact that he had one is obvious, wouldn't you? He is... he was a nice old chap, said Carrot. Hardly stirred out. Spends... spent all his time with his books. Very religious. I mean, all kinds of religion. Studied them. Bit odd, but no harm in him. Why should anyone want to kill him? Or Mr Hopkinson, a pair of harmless old men. Vimes handed him the battle bread. We shall find out. Constable Angua, I want you to have a look at this one. Take, yes, take Corporal Littlebottom, he said. He's been doing some work on it. Angua's from Uberwald too, Littlebottom. Maybe you've got friends in common, that sort of thing. Carrot nodded cheerfully. Angua's expression went wooden. Ha, Hudrakgar de watch shirt at us, said Carrot. Ha, Angua to Constable Angua Kahar, Bahak Bahar Shud Kar Kadak. Welcome, Corporal Smallbottom. This is Constable Angua. Angua, show Smallbottom how well you're learning dwarfish. Angua appeared to concentrate. Grrrduk, dbbuzdrrak, she managed. Carrot laughed. You just said small, delightful mining tool of a feminine nature. Cheery stared at Angua, who returned the stare blankly while mumbling, Well, dwarfish is difficult if you haven't eaten gravel all your life. Cheery was still staring. Er, uh, thank you, he managed. Er, uh, I'd better go and tidy up. What about Lord Vetinari? said Carrot. I'm putting my best man on that, said Vimes. Trustworthy, reliable, knows the ins and outs of this place like the back of his hand. I'm handling it, in other words. Carrot's hopeful expression faded to hurt puzzlement. Don't you want me to? he said. I could... No. Indulge an old man. I want you to go back to the watch house and take care of things. What things? Everything. Rise to the occasion. Move paper around. Does that new shift rotor to draw up? 
Shout at people, read reports. Carrot saluted. Yes, Commander Vimes. Good. Off you go, then. And if anything happens to Vetinari, Vimes added to himself as the dejected Carrot went out, no one will be able to say you were anywhere near him. The little grill in the gate of the Royal College of Arms snapped open to the distant accompaniment of brayings and grunts. Yes, said a voice. What dost thee want? I'm Corporal Nobbs, said Nobby. An eye applied itself to the grill. It took in the full dreadful extent of the godly handiwork that was Corporal Nobbs. Are you, eh, uh, the baboon? We've had one on order for... No, I've come about some coat with arms, said Nobby. You, said the voice. The owner of the voice made it very clear that he was aware there were degrees of nobility from something above kingship, stretching all the way down to commoner, and that as far as Corporal Nobbs was concerned, an entirely new category, communist, perhaps, would have to be coined. "'I've been told,' said Nobby, miserably, "'it's about this ring I got.' "'Go round the back door,' said the voice. "'Cheery was tidying away the makeshift equipment "'he'd set up in the privy when a sound made him look round. "'Angua was leaning against the doorway. "'What do you want?' he demanded. "'Nothing. I just thought I'd say don't worry. "'I won't tell anyone if you don't want me to.' I don't know what you're talking about. I think you're lying. Cheery dropped a test tube and sagged onto a seat. How could you tell, he said. Even other dwarfs can't tell. I've been so careful. Shall we just say I have special talents, said Angua. Cheery started to clean a beaker distractedly. I don't know why you're so upset, said Angua. I thought dwarfs hardly recognised the difference between male and female anyway. Half the dwarfs we bring in here under number 23 are female, I know that, and they're the ones that are hardest to subdue. What's a number 23? Running, screaming at people while drunk and trying to cut their knees off, said Angua. It's easier to give them numbers than write it down every time. Look, there's plenty of women in this town that'd love to do things the dwarf way. I mean, what are the choices they've got? Barmaid, seamstress, or someone's wife? Well, you can do anything the men do. "'Provided we do only what the men do,' said Cheery. Angua paused. "'Oh,' she said, "'I see. Uh, yes, I know that tune.' "'I can't hold an axe,' said Cheery. "'I'm scared of fights. "'I think songs about gold are stupid. "'I hate beer. "'I can't even drink dwarfishly. "'When I try to quaff, I drown the dwarf behind me.' "'I can see that could be tricky,' said Angua. "'I saw a girl walk down the street here and some men whistled after her. "'And you can wear dresses with colours. "'Oh, dear,' Angua tried not to smile. "'How long have Lady Dwarfs felt like this? "'I thought they were happy with the way things are.' "'Oh, it's easy to be happy when you don't know any different,' said Cheery, bitterly. "'Chain mail trousers are fine, if you've never heard of lingerie.' "'Lingerie? Oh, yes,' said Angua. Lingerie, yes. She tried to feel sympathetic and found that she was, really, but she did have to stop herself from saying that at least you don't have to find styles that can easily be undone by pause. I thought I could come here and get a different kind of job, Cheery moaned. I'm good at needlework, and I went to see the Guild of Seamstresses, and she stopped and blushed behind her beard. Yes, said Angua, lots of people make that mistake. 
She stood up straight and brushed herself off. You've impressed Commander Vimes anyway. I think you'll like it here. Everyone's got troubles in the watch. Normal people don't become policemen. You'll get on fine. Commander Vimes is a bit... Cherry began. He's okay when he's in a good mood. He needs to drink, but he doesn't dare to these days. You know, one drink is too many, two is not enough. And that makes him edgy. When he's in a bad mood, he'll tread on your toes and then shout at you for not standing up straight. You're normal, said Cherry, shyly. I like you. Angua patted her on the head. You say that now, she said, but when you've been around here for a while, you'll find out that sometimes I can be a bitch. What's that? What? That painting with the eyes. Or two points of red light, said Cherry. Oh, yeah? It's the last thing Father Tubalcheck saw, I think, said the dwarf. Angua stared at the black rectangle. She sniffed. There it is again. Cherry took a step backwards. What? What? Where's that smell coming from? Angua demanded. Not me, said Cherry hurriedly. Angua grabbed a small dish from the bench and sniffed at it. This is it? I smelled this at the museum. What is it? It's just clay. It was on the floor in the room where the old priest was killed, said Cherry. Probably it came off someone's boot. Angua crumbled some of it between her fingers. I think it's just potter's clay, said Cherry. We used to use it at the guild for making pots, she added, just in case Angua hadn't grasped things. You know, crucibles and things. This looks like someone tried baking it but didn't get the heat right. See how it crumbles? Pottery, said Angua. I know a potter. She glanced down at the dwarf's iconograph again. Please, no, she thought. Not one of them. The front gate of the College of Arms, both front gates, were swung open. The two heralds bobbed excitedly around Corporal Nobbs as he tottered out. Has your lordship got everything he requires? <laughs> said Nobby. If we can be of any help whatsoever. <laughs> Any help at all? Mm. Sorry about your boots, my lord, but the wyvern's been ill. It'll brush off no trouble when it dries. Nobby tottered off along the lane. He even walks nobly, wouldn't you say? More nobly than nobly, I think. It's disgusting that he's a mere corporal, a man of his breeding. Igneous the troll backed away until he was up against his potter's wheel. I never done it, he said. Done what? said Angua. Igneous hesitated. Igneous was huge and, well, rocky. He moved around the streets of Ankh-Morpork like a small iceberg, and, like an iceberg, there was more to him than immediately met the eye. He was known as a supplier of things, more or less any kind of things, and he was also a wall, which was the same as a fence, only a lot harder and tougher to beat. Igneous never asked unnecessary questions because he couldn't think of any. Nothing, he said finally. Igneous had always found the general denial was more reliable than the specific refutation. Glad to hear it, said Angua. Now, where'd you get your clay from? Igneous's face crinkled as he tried to work out where this line of questioning could possibly go. I got receipts, he said. Every bit properly paid for. Angua nodded. 
It was probably true. Igneous, despite giving the appearance of not being able to count beyond ten without ripping off someone else's arm, and having an intimate involvement in the city's complex hierarchy of crime, was known to pay his bills. If you were going to be successful in the criminal world, you needed a reputation for honesty. Have you seen any like this before? she said, holding out the sample. Uh, it's clay, said Igneous, relaxing a little. I see clay all the time. It don't have no serial number. Clay's clay. Got lumps of it out the back. You make bricks and pots and stuff out of it. There's lots of potters in this town, and we all got the stuff. Why you want to know about clay? Can't you tell where it came from? Igneous took the tiny piece, sniffed it, and rolled it between his fingers. This is crank, he said, looking a lot happier now that the conversation was veering away from more personal concerns. That's like crappy clay, just good enough for them lady potters with dangly earrings, what make coffee mugs, what you can't lift with both hands. He rolled it again. Also, it got a lot of grog in it. That's bits of old pots, all smashed up real small. Makes it stronger. Any potter got loads of stuff like this. He rubbed it again. This has been sort of heated up, but it ain't properly baked. But you can't say where it came from? Out of the ground is the best I can do, lady, said Igneous. He relaxed a little now it appeared that inquiries were not to do with such matters as a recent batch of hollow statues and subjects of a similar nature. As sometimes happened in these circumstances, he tried to be helpful. Come and have a look at this. He loped away. The watchmen followed him through the warehouse, observed by a couple of dozen cautious trolls. No one liked to see policemen up close, especially if the reason you were working at Igneous's place was that it was nice and quiet and you wanted somewhere to lie low for a few weeks. Besides, while it was true that a lot of people came to Ankh-Morpork because it was a city of opportunity, sometimes it was the opportunity not to be hung, skewered or dismantled for whatever crimes you'd left behind in the mountains. Just don't look, said Angua. Why? said Cherry. Because there's just us, and there's at least two dozen of them, said Angua, and all our clothes were made for people with full sets of arms and legs. Igneous went through a doorway and out into the yard behind the factory. Pots were stacked high on pallets, bricks were curing in long rows, and under a crude roof were several large mounds of clay. Eh, said Igneous generously. Clay. Is there a special name for it when it's piled up like that? said Cheery timorously. She prodded the stuff. Yeah, said Igneous. That's technically what we calls a heap. Angua shook her head sadly. So much for clues. Clay was clay. She'd hoped they were all different sorts, and it turned out to be as common as dirt. And then Igneous helped the police with their inquiries. Do you mind if you goes out the back way? He mumbled. Yous make the people nervous, and I get pots I can't sell. He indicated a pair of wide doors in the rear wall, big enough for a cart to get through. Then he fumbled in his apron and produced a large key ring. The padlock on the gate was big and shiny and new. You were afraid of theft, said Angua. No, lady, that's unfair, said Igneous. Someone broke the old lock when they pinched some stuff three, four months ago. 
Disgusting, isn't it? said Angua. Makes you wonder why you pay your taxes, I expect. In some ways, Igneous was a lot brighter than, say, Mr. Ironcrust. He ignored the remark. It was just stuff, he said, ushering them towards the open gate as speedily as he dared. Was it clay they stole? said Cheery. It don't cost much, but it's the principle of the thing, he said. It beat me why they bothered. It come to something when half a ton of clay can just walk out the door. Angua looked at the lock again. Yes, indeed, she said distantly. The gate rattled shut behind them. They were outside in an alley. Fancy anyone stealing a load of clay, said Cheery. Did he tell the watch? I shouldn't think so, said Angua. Wasps don't complain too loudly when they're stung. Anyway, Detritus thinks Igneous is mixed up with smuggling slab to the mountains, and so he's itching for an excuse to have a poke around in here. Look, this is still technically my day off. She stepped back and peered up at the high-spiked wall around the yard. Could you bake clay in a baker's oven? she said. Oh, no. Doesn't get hot enough. No, it's the wrong shape. Some of your pots would be baked hard, while others would still be green. Why'd you ask? Why did I ask? Angua thought. Oh, what the hell? Fancy a drink? Not ale, said Cheery quickly, and nowhere where you have to sing while you drink, or slap your knees. Angua nodded understandingly. Somewhere, in fact, without dwarfs? Eh, uh, yes. Where we're going, said Angua, that won't be a problem. The fog was rising fast. All morning it had hung around in alleys and cellars. Now it was moving back in for the night. It came out of the ground and up from the river and down from the sky, a clinging, yellowish, stinging blanket, the river ark in droplet form. It found its way through cracks and, against all common sense, managed to survive in lighted rooms, filling the air with an eye-watering haze and making the candles crackle. Outdoors, every figure loomed, every shape was a menace. In a drab alley off a drab street, Angua stopped, squared her shoulders and pushed open a door. The atmosphere in the long, low, dark room altered as she stepped inside. A moment of time rang like a glass bowl, and then there was a sense of relaxation. People turned back in their seats. Well, they were seated. It was quite likely they were people. Cheery moved closer to Angua. What's this place called? she whispered. It hasn't really got a name, said Angua, but sometimes we call it Beus. It didn't look like an inn outside. How did you find it? You don't. You gravitate to it. Cheery looked around nervously. She wasn't sure where they were, apart from somewhere in the cattle market district, somewhere up a maze of alleys. Angua walked to the bar. A deeper shadow appeared out of the gloom. Hello, Angua, it said in a deep rolling voice. Fruit juice, is it? Yes, chilled. And what about the dwarf? She'll have him raw, said a voice somewhere in the gloom. There was a ripple of laughter in the dark. Some of it sounded altogether too strange to Cheery. She couldn't imagine it issuing from normal lips. I'll have a fruit juice too, she quavered. Angua glanced at the dwarf. She felt oddly grateful that the remark from the darkness seemed to have gone entirely over the small bullet head. She unhooked her badge and with care and deliberation laid it down on the counter. It went palink. Then Angua leaned forward and showed the iconograph to the barman. If it was a man. Cheery wasn't sure yet. A sign over the bar said, Don't you ever change. 
"'You know everything that's going on, Igor,' Angiva said. Two old men got killed yesterday, "'and a load of clay got stolen from Igneous the Troll recently. "'Did you ever hear about that?' "'What's that to you?' "'Killing old men is against the law,' said Angua. "'Of course, a lot of things are against the law, "'so we're very busy in the watch. "'We like to be busy about important things. "'Otherwise, we have to be busy about unimportant things. "'Are you hearing me?' "'The shadow considered this. "'Go and take a seat,' it said. "'I'll bring your drinks.' "'Angua led the way to a table in an alcove. "'The clientele lost interest in them. "'A buzz of conversation resumed. "'What is this place?' Cheery whispered. "'It's a place where people can be themselves,' said Angua slowly. "'People who have to be a little bit careful at other times, you know?' "'No!' Angua sighed. "'Vampires, zombies, bogeymen, ghouls, oh my, the under—' "'She corrected herself. "'The differently alive,' she said. "'People who have to spend most of their time being very careful, not frightening people.' Fitting in. That's how it works here. Fit in, get a job, don't worry people, and you probably won't find a crowd outside with pitchforks and flaming torches, but sometimes it's good to go where everybody knows your shape. Now that Cheery's eyes had grown accustomed to the low light, she could make out the variety of shapes on the benches. Some of them were a lot bigger than human. Some had pointy ears and long muzzles. Who's that girl? she said. She looks normal. That's Violet. She's a tooth fairy, and next to her is Schleppel, the bogeyman. In the far corner, something sat huddled in a huge overcoat under a high, broad-brimmed, pointed hat. And him? That's old man Trouble, said Angua. If you know what's good for you, you don't mind him. Er, uh, any werewolves here? One or two, said Angua. I hate werewolves. Oh? The oddest customer was sitting by herself at a small round table. She appeared to be a very old lady in a shawl and a straw hat with flowers in it. She was staring in front of her with an expression of good-natured aimlessness and in context looked more frightening than any of the shadowy figures. "'What is she?' Cheery hissed. "'Her? Oh, that's Mrs. Gamage.' "'And what does she do? Do? Well, she comes in here most days for a drink and some company. Sometimes we... they... Have a sing-song, old songs, that she remembers. She's practically blind. If you mean, is she an undead? No, she isn't. Not a vampire, werewolf, zombie, or a bogeyman. Just an old lady. A huge, shambling, hairy thing paused at Mrs. Gamage's table and put a glass in front of her. Port and lemon, there you goes, Mrs. Gamage, it rumbled. Cheers, Charlie, the old lady cackled. How's the plumbing business? "'Doing fine, love,' said the bogeyman, and vanished into the gloom. "'That was a plumber?' said Cheery. "'Of course not. I don't know who Charlie was. He probably died years ago. "'But she thinks the bogeyman is him, and who's going to tell her different?' "'You mean she doesn't know this place is—' "'Look, she's been coming here ever since the old days when it was the Crown and Dax,' said Angua. "'No one wants to spoil things. Everyone likes Mrs. Gamage. They watch out for her, help her in little ways.' How? Well, I heard that last month someone broke into her hovel and stole some of her stuff. That doesn't sound helpful. And it was all returned next day and a couple of thieves were found in the shades with not a drop of blood left in their bodies. Angua smiled and her voice took on a mocking edge. You know, you get told a lot of bad things about the undead, but you never hear about the marvellous work they do in the community. 
Igor the barman appeared. He looked more or less human, apart from the hair on the back of his hands and the single, unbifurcated eyebrow across his forehead. He tossed a couple of mats on the table and put their drinks down. "'You're probably wishing this was a dwarf bar,' said Angua. She lifted her beer mat carefully and glanced at the underside. Cheery looked around again. By now, if it had been a dwarf bar, the floor would be sticky with beer, the air would be full of flying quaff, and people would be singing. They'd probably be singing the latest dwarf tune, Gold, 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 or one of the old favourites like Gold, 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 or the all-time biggie, Gold, Gold, Gold. In a few minutes, the first axe would have been thrown. No, she said, it could never be that bad. Drink up, said Angua. We've got to go and see, uh, something. A large, hairy hand grabbed Angua's wrist. She looked up into a terrifying face, all eyes and mouth and hair. Hello, Schlitzen, she said calmly. Uh, I'm hearing where there's a baron who's really unhappy about you, said Schlitzen, alcohol crystallising on his breath. That's my business, Schlitzen, said Angua. Why don't you just go back behind your door like the good bogeyman that you are? Ah, he's saying we're your disgrace in the old country. Let go, please, said Angua. Her skin was white where Schlitzen was gripping her. Cheery looked from the wrist to the bogeyman's shoulder. Rangy though the creature was, muscles were strung along his arm like beads on a wire. Ah, you're wearing a badge, it sneered. What's a good we? Angua moved so fast, she was a blur. Her free hand pulled something from her belt and flipped it up and onto Schlitzen's head. He stopped and stood, swaying back and forth gently, making faint moaning sounds. On his head, flopping down around his ears like the knotted hanky of a style-impaired seaside sunbather, was a small square of heavy material. Angua pushed back her chair and grabbed the beer mat. The shadowy figures around the walls were muttering. "'Let's get out of here,' she said. "'Igor, give us half a minute and then you can take the blanket off him. Come on.' They hurried out. The fog had already turned the sun into a mere suggestion, but it was vivid daylight compared to the gloom in Beers. "'What happened to him?' said Cheery, running to keep up with Angua's stride. "'Existential uncertainty,' Angua said. "'He doesn't know whether he exists or not. "'It's cruel, I know, but it's the only thing we've found that works against bogeymen. "'Blue, fluffy blanket for preference,' she noted Cheery's blank expression. "'Look, bogeymen go away if you put your head under the blankets. "'Everyone knows that, don't they?' So if you put their head under a blanket... Oh, I see. Oh, that's nasty. He'll feel all right in ten minutes. Angua skimmed the beer mat across the alley. What was he saying about a baron? I wasn't really listening, said Angua carefully. Cheery shivered in the fog, but not just from the cold. He sounded like he came from Uberwald, like us. There was a baron who lived near us, and he hated people to leave. Yes... The whole family were werewolves. One of them ate my second cousin. Angua's memory spun in a hurry. Old meals came back to haunt her from the time before she'd said, No, this is not the way to live. A dwarf, a dwarf. No, she was pretty sure she'd never... The family had always made fun of her eating habits. That's why I can't stand them, said Cheery. Oh, people say they can be tamed, but I say, once a wolf, always a wolf. You can't trust them. They're basically evil, aren't they? They could go back to the wild at any moment, I say. Yes, you may be right. And the worst thing is, most of the time they walk around looking just like real people. Angua blinked, glad of the twin disguises of the fog and Cheery's unquestioning confidence. Come on, we're nearly there. 
Where? We're going to see someone who's either our murderer or who knows who the murderer is. Cheery stopped. But you've got only a sword and I haven't even got that. Don't worry, we won't need weapons. Oh, good. They wouldn't be any use. Oh. Vimes opened his door to see what all the shouting was about down in the office. The corporal manning, or in this case dwarfing, the desk was having trouble. Again? How many times have you been killed this week? I was minding my own business, said the unseen complainer. Stacking garlic? You're a vampire, aren't you? I mean, let's see what jobs you've been doing. Post sharpener for a fencing firm? Sunglasses tester for Argus opticians? Is it me? Or is there some underlying trend here? Excuse me, Commander Vimes? Vimes looked round into a smiling face that sought only to do good in the world, even if the world had other things it wanted done. Ah, constable visit. Yes, he said hurriedly. At the moment, I'm afraid I'm rather busy, and I'm not even sure that I've got an immortal soul. <laughs> so perhaps you could call again when... It's about those words you asked me to check, said Visit reproachfully. What words? The ones Father Tubalcheck wrote in his own blood. You said to try and find out what they meant. Oh, yes, come into my office, Vimes relaxed. This wasn't going to be another one of those painful conversations about the state of his soul and the necessity of giving it a wash and brush up before eternal damnation set in. This was going to be about something important. It's ancient Cenotine, sir. It's out of one of their holy books, although, of course, when I say holy, it is a fact that they were basically misguided in a... Yes, yes, I'm sure, said Vimes, sitting down. Does it by any chance say Mr X did it? No, sir, that phrase does not appear anywhere in any known holy book, sir. Ah, said Vimes. Besides, I looked at other documents in the room, and the paper does not appear to be in the deceased's handwriting, sir. Vimes brightened up. Aha! Someone else's. Does it say something like, Take that, you bastard, we've been waiting ages to get you for what you did all those years ago? No, sir, that phrase also does not appear in any holy book anywhere, said Constable Visit, and hesitated. Except in the Apocrypha to the Vengeful Testament of Offler, he added conscientiously. These words are from the Cenotine Book of Truth, he sniffed, as they called it. It's what their false god. Could I just perhaps have the words and leave out the comparative religion, said Vimes. Very well, sir. Visit looked hurt, but unfolded a piece of paper and sniffed disparagingly. These are some of the rules that their god allegedly gave to the first people after he'd baked them out of clay, sir. Rules like, thou shalt labour fruitfully all the days of your life, sir, and thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt be humble, that sort of thing. Is that all? said Vimes. Yes, sir, said Visit. They're just religious quotations. Yes, sir. Any idea why it was in his mouth? Poor devil looked like he was having a last cigarette. No, sir. I could understand it if it was one of the smite-your-enemies ones, said Vimes. But that's just saying, get on with your work and don't make trouble. Sino was rather a liberal god, sir, not big on commandments. Sounds almost decent as gods go. Visit looked disapproving. The Cenotines died through five hundred years of waging some of the bloodiest wars on the continent, sir. Spare the thunderbolt and spoil the congregation, eh? said Vimes. Pardon, sir? Oh, nothing. Well, thank you, Constable. I'll uh, see that Captain Carrot is informed, and uh, thank you once again. Don't let me keep you from... Vimes's desperately accelerating voice was too late to prevent Visit pulling a roll of paper out of his breastplate.
I brought you the latest unadorned facts magazine, sir, and also this month's Battle Call, which contains many articles that I'm sure will be of interest to you, including Pastor Nasal Peddler's exhortation to the congregation to rise up and speak to people sincerely through their letterboxes, sir. Er, uh, thank you. I can't help noticing that the pamphlets and magazines I gave you last week are still on your desk. Where I left them, sir? Oh, yes, well, sorry, you know how it is. The amount of work these days makes it so hard to find the time to... It's never too soon to contemplate eternal damnation, sir. I think about it all the time, Constable. Thank you. Unfair, thought Vimes, when visit had gone. A notice left at the scene of a crime in my town, and does it have the decency to be a death threat? No. The last dying scrawl of a man determined to name his murderer? No. It's a bit of religious doggerel. What's the good of clues that are more mysterious than the mystery? He scribbled a note on Visit's translation and chucked it into his in-tray. Too late, Angua remembered why she avoided the slaughterhouse district at this time of the month. She could change at will at any time, that's what people forgot about werewolves, but they remembered the important thing. Full moonlight was the irresistible trigger. The lunar rays reached down into the centre of her morphic memory and flipped all the switches, whether she wanted them switched or not. Full moon was only a couple of days away, and the delicious smell of the penned animals and the blood from the slaughterhouses was chiming against her strict vegetarianism. The clash was bringing on her PLT. She glared at the shadowy building in front of her. "'I think we'll go round the back,' she said, "'and you can knock.' "'Me? They won't take any notice of me,' said Cheery. "'You show them your badge and tell them you're the watch. "'They'll ignore me. They'll laugh at me. "'You're going to have to do it sooner or later. Go on.' The door was opened by a stout man in a bloody apron. He was shocked to have his belt grabbed by one dwarf hand while another dwarf hand was thrust in front of his face, holding a badge, and a dwarf voice in the region of his navel said, "'We're the watch, right? Oh, yes, and if you don't let us in, we'll have your guts for starters.' "'Good try,' murmured Angua. She lifted Cheery out of the way and smiled brightly at the butcher. "'Mr. Sock, we'd like to speak to an employee of yours, Mr. Dorful.' The man hadn't quite got over Cheery, but he managed to rally, "'Mr. Dorful?' "'What's he done now?' "'We'd just like to talk to him. May we come in?' Mr Sock looked at Cheery, who was trembling with nerves and excitement. "'I have a choice,' he said. "'Let's say you have a kind of choice,' said Angua. She tried to close her nostrils against the beguiling miasma of blood. There was even a sausage factory on the premises. It used all the bits of animals no one would ever otherwise eat or even recognise. The odours of the abattoir turned her human stomach, but deep inside... Part of her sat up and drooled, and begged at the mingling smells of the pork and beef and lamb and mutton and... "'Rat?' she said, sniffing. "'I didn't know you supplied the dwarf market, Mr Sock.' Mr Sock was suddenly a man who wished to be seen to be cooperative. "'Dorful, come here right now!' There was the sound of footsteps, and a figure emerged from behind a rack of beef carcasses. Some people had a thing about the undead... Angua knew Commander Vimes was uneasy in their presence, although he was getting better these days. People always needed someone to feel superior to. The living hated the undead, and the undead loathed, she felt her fists clench, the unalive. The golem called Dorful lurched a little because one leg was slightly shorter than the other. It didn't wear any clothes because there was nothing whatever to conceal, 
and so she could see the mottling on it where fresh clay had been added over the years. There was so much patching that she wondered how old it could be. Originally, some attempt had been made to depict human musculature, but the repairs had nearly obscured these. The thing looked like the kind of pots Igneous despised, the ones made by people who thought that because it was handmade it was supposed to look as if it was handmade, and that thumbprints baked in the clay were a sign of integrity. That was it. The thing looked handmade. Of course, over the years it had mostly made itself, one repair at a time. Its triangular eyes glowed faintly. There were no pupils, just the dark red glow of a banked fire. It was holding a long, heavy cleaver. Cheery's stare gravitated to this and remained fixed on it in terrified fascination. The other hand grasped a piece of string, on the end of which was a large, hairy and very smelly goat. "'What are you doing, Dorful? The golem nodded towards the goat. "'Feeding the Judas goat?' Dorful nodded again. "'Have you got something to do, Mr. Sock?' said Angua. "'No, I've... you have got something to do, Mr. Sock,' said Angua emphatically. "'Huh? Uh, uh, yes, uh, yes, okay. I'll just go and see to the offal boilers.' As the butcher walked away, he stopped to wave a finger under the place where Dorfel's nose would be if the golem had had a nose. "'If you've been causing trouble,' he began. "'I expect those boilers could really do with attention,' said Angua sharply. He hurried off. There was silence in the yard, although the sounds of the city drifted in over the walls. From the other side of the slaughterhouse there was the occasional bleat of a worried sheep. Dorfel stood stock-still, holding his cleaver and looking down at the ground. "'Is it a troll made to look like a human?' whispered Cheery. "'Look at those eyes!' "'It's not a troll,' said Angua. "'It's a golem, a man of clay. It's a machine.' "'It looks like a human. "'That's because it's a machine made for looking like a human.' "'She walked around behind the thing. "'I'm going to read your chem, Dorful,' she said. "'The golem let go of the goat and raised the cleaver "'and brought it down sharply onto a chopping block beside Cheery, "'making the dwarf leap sideways.' Then it pulled around a slate that was slung over its shoulder on a piece of string, unhooked the pencil, and wrote, Yes. When Angua put her hand up, Cheery realised that there was a thin line across the golem's forehead. To her horror, the entire top of the head flipped up. Angua, quite unperturbed, reached inside. Her hand came out holding a yellowing scroll. The golem froze. The eyes faded. Angua unrolled the paper. Some kind of holy writing, she said. It always is. Some old dead religion. You've killed it? No, you can't take away what isn't there. She put the scroll back and closed the head with a click. The golem came alive again, the glow returning to its eyes. Cheery had been holding her breath. It came out in a rush. What did you do? she managed. Tell her, Dorful, said Angua. The golem's thick fingers were a blur as the pencil scratched across the slate. I am a golem. I was made of clay. My life is the words. By means of words of purpose in my head I acquire life. My life is to work. I obey all commands. I take no rest. What words of purpose? Relevant texts that are the focus of belief. Golem must work. Golem must have a master.
The goat lay down beside the golem and started to chew cud. "'There have been two murders,' said Angua. "'I'm pretty certain a golem did one, and probably both. "'Can you tell us anything, Dorful?' "'Sorry, look,' said Cheery. "'Are you telling me this thing is powered by words? "'I mean, is it telling me it's powered by words?' "'Why not? Words do have power. "'Everyone knows that,' said Angua. "'There are more golems around than you might think. "'They're out of fashion now, but they last. "'They can work underwater, or in total darkness, "'or knee-deep in poison.' "'For years. They don't need rest or feeding. They—' "'But that's slavery,' said Cheery. "'Of course it isn't. You might as well enslave a doorknob. "'Have you got anything to tell me, Dorful?' "'Cheery kept looking at the cleaver in the block. "'Words like length and heavy and sharp were filling her head "'more snugly than any words could have filled the clay skull of the golem. "'Dorful said nothing. "'How long have you been working here, Dorful?' "'Now—' Three hundred days already. "'And you have time off?' "'To make a hollow laughing, what would I do with time off? "'I mean, you're not always in the slaughterhouse. "'Sometimes I make deliveries.' "'And meet other golems? "'Now listen, Dorful, I know you things keep in touch somehow, "'and if a golem is killing real people,' I wouldn't give a busted teacup for your chances. Folk will be along here straight away with flaming torches and sledgehammers. You get my drift? The golem shrugged. They cannot take away what does not exist, it wrote. Angua threw up her hands. I'm trying to be civilised, she said. I could confiscate you right now. The charge would be being obstructive when it's been a long day and I've had enough. Do you know Father Tubalcheck? "'The old priest who lives on the bridge.' "'How come you know him?' "'I have made deliveries there.' "'He's been murdered. Where were you when he was killed?' "'In the slaughterhouse.' "'How do you know?' Dorful hesitated a moment. Then the next words were written very slowly, as if they had come from a long way away after a great deal of thought. "'Because it is something that must have happened not long ago, "'because you are excited. "'For the last three days I have been working here.' "'All the time?' "'Yes. Twenty-four hours a day?' "'Yes. Men and trolls here on every shift they will tell you.' During the day I must slaughter, dress, quarter, joint and bone, and at night without rest I must make sausages and boil up the livers, hearts, tripes, kidneys, and chitterlings. That's awful, said Cheery. The pencil blurred briefly. Close. Dorful turned his head slowly to look at Angua and wrote, do you need me further? If we do, we know where to find you. I am sorry about the old man. Good. Come on, Cheery. They felt the golem's eyes on them as they left the yard. It was lying, said Cheery. Why'd you say that? It looked as if it was lying. You're probably right, said Angua, but you can see the size of the place. I bet we wouldn't be able to prove it had stepped out for half an hour. 
I think I'll suggest that we put it under what Commander Vimes calls special surveillance. What, like plain clothes? Something like that, said Angua carefully. Funny to see a pet goat in a slaughterhouse, I thought, said Cheery, as they walked on through the fog. What? Oh, you mean the Eudis goat, said Angua. Most slaughterhouses have one. It's not a pet. I suppose you could call it an employee. Employee? What kind of job could it possibly do? Huh? Walk into the slaughterhouse every day. That's its job. Look, you've got a pen full of frightened animals, right? And they're milling around and leaderless. And there's this ramp into the building, looks very scary. And hey, there's this goat. It's not scared, and so the flock follows it. And... Angua made a throat-slitting noise. Only the goat walks out. That's horrible. I suppose it makes sense from the goat's point of view. At least it does walk out, said Angua. How did you know about all this? Oh, you pick up all sorts of odds and ends of stuff in the watch. I've got a lot to learn, I can see, said Cheery. I never thought you had to carry bits of blanket for a start. It's special equipment if you're dealing with the undead. Well, I knew about garlic and vampires. Anything holy works on vampires. What else works on werewolves? Uh, sorry, said Angua, who was still thinking about the golem. I've got a silver mail vest which I promised my family I'd wear, but is anything else good for werewolves? A gin and tonic's always welcome, said Angua distantly. Angua? Hmm? Yes, what? Someone told me there was a werewolf in the watch. I can't believe that. Angua stopped and stared down at her. I mean, sooner or later, the wolf comes through, said Cheery. I'm surprised Commander Vimes allows it. There is a werewolf in the watch, yes, said Angua. I knew there was something odd about Constable Visit. Angua's jaw dropped. He always looks hungry, said Cheery, and he's got that odd smile all the time. I know a werewolf when I see one. He does look a bit hungry, that's true, said Angua. She couldn't think of anything else to say. Well, I'm going to be keeping my distance. Fine, said Angua. Angua? Yes? Why do you wear your badge on a collar round your neck? What? Oh, well, so it's um, always handy, you know, in any circumstances. Do I need to do that? I shouldn't think so. Mr. Sark jumped. Dorful, you damn stupid lump! Never sneak up behind a man on the bacon slicer. I've told you that before. Try to make some noise when you move, damn you! The golem held up its slate, which said, Tonight I cannot work. What's this? The bacon slicer never asks for time off? It is a holy day. Sock looked at the red eyes. Old Fishbine had said something about this, hadn't he, when he'd sold Dorful? Something like, sometimes it'll go off for a few hours because it's a holy day. It's the words in its head. If it doesn't go and trot off to its temple or whatever it is, the words will stop working. Don't ask me why there's no point in stopping it. Five hundred and thirty dollars the thing had cost. He thought it was a bargain. And it was a bargain, no doubt about that. The damn thing only ever stopped working when it had run out of things to do. Sometimes not even then, according to the stories. You heard about golems flooding out houses because no one told them to stop carrying water from the well, or washing the dishes until the plates were as thin as paper. Stupid things, but useful, if you kept your eye on them. And yet, and yet he could see why no one seemed to keep them for long. It was the way the damned two-handed engine just stood there, taking it all in and putting it where, and never complained or spoke at all. 
A man could get worried about a bargain like that and feel mightily relieved when he was writing out a receipt for the new owner. "'Seems to me there's been a lot of holy days lately,' said Sock. "'Sometimes are more holy than others.' "'But they couldn't skive off, could they? "'Work was what a golem did.' "'I don't know how we're going to manage,' Sock began. "'It is a holy day.' Oh, all right, you can have time off tomorrow. Tonight. Holy day starts at sunset. Be back quickly, then, said Sock weakly, or I'll... You be back quickly, do you hear? That was another thing. You couldn't threaten the creatures. You certainly couldn't withhold their pay because they didn't get any. You couldn't frighten them. Fishbein had said that a weaver over Knapp Hillway had ordered his golem to smash itself to bits with a hammer... And it had. Yes, I hear. In a way, it didn't matter who they were. In fact, their anonymity was part of the whole business. They thought themselves part of the march of history, the tide of progress and the wave of the future. They were men who felt that the time had come. Regimes can survive barbarian hordes, crazed terrorists, and hooded secret societies, but they're in real trouble when prosperous and anonymous men sit around a big table and think thoughts like that. One said, At least it's clean this way. No blood. And it would be for the good of the city, of course. They nodded gravely. No one needed to say that what was good for them was good for Ankh Morpork. And he won't die? Uh, apparently he can be kept merely uh, unwell. The dosage can be varied, I'm told. Good. I'd rather have him unwell than dead. I wouldn't trust Vetinari to stay in a grave. I've heard that he once said he'd prefer to be cremated, as a matter of fact. Then I just hope they scatter the ashes really widely. That's all. What about the watch? What about it? Ah. Lord Vetinari opened his eyes. Against all rationality, his hair ached. He concentrated, and a blur by the bed focused into the shape of Samuel Vimes. Ah, Vimes, he said weakly. How are you feeling, sir? Truly dreadful. Who was that little man with the incredibly bandy legs? That was Donut Jimmy, sir. He used to be a jockey on a very fat horse. A racehorse? Apparently, sir. A fat racehorse? Surely that could never win a race. I don't believe it ever did, sir, but Jimmy made a lot of money by not winning races. Ah, he gave me milk and some sort of sticky potion. Vetinari concentrated. I was heartily sick. So I understand, sir. Funny phrase, that, heartily sick. I wonder why it's a cliché. Sounds jolly. Rather cheerful, really. Yes, sir. Feel like I've got a bad dose of the flu, Vimes. Head not working properly. Really, sir? The patrician thought for a while. There was obviously something else on his mind. Why did he still smell of horses, Vimes? He said at last. 
"'He's a horse doctor, sir, a damn good one. "'I heard last month he treated dire fortune "'and it didn't fall over until the last furlong. "'Doesn't sound helpful, Vimes?' "'Oh, I don't know, sir. "'The horse had dropped dead coming up to the starting line. "'Ah, I see. "'Well, well, well. "'What a nasty, suspicious mind you have, Vimes. "'Thank you, sir.' "'The patrician raised himself on his elbows. "'Should toenails throb, Vimes?' "'Couldn't say, sir.' "'Now I think I should like to read for a while. "'Life goes on, huh?' Vimes went to the window. There was a nightmarish figure crouched on the edge of the balcony outside, staring into the thickening fog. Everything all right? Constable Downspout? <sighs> yes, <sighs> said the apparition. I'll shut the window now. The fog is coming in. <sighs> right you are, sir. Vimes closed the window, trapping a few tendrils which gradually faded away. What was that? said Lord Vetinari. Constable Downspout's a gargoyle, sir. He's no good on parade and bloody useless on the street, but when it comes to staying in one place, sir, you can't beat him. He's world champion at not moving. If you want the winner of the hundred metres standing still, that him. He spent three days on a roof in the rain when we caught the Park Lane nobbler. Nothing will get past him. And there's Corporal Gimletson patrolling the corridor, and Constable Glod's nephew on the floor below, and Constables Flint and Moraine in the rooms on either side of you, and Sergeant Detritus will be around constantly, so that if anyone nods off, he'll kick ass, sir. And you'll know when he does that, because the poor bugger will come right through the wall. Well done, Vimes. Am I right in thinking that all my guards are non-human? They all seem to be dwarfs and trolls. "'Safest way, sir. "'You've thought of everything, Vimes. "'Hope so, sir. "'Thank you, Vimes.' "'Vetinari sat up and took a mass of papers off the bedside table. "'And now, don't let me detain you.' "'Vimes' mouth dropped open. "'Vetinari looked up. "'Was there anything else, Commander?' "'Well, I suppose not, sir. "'I suppose I'd just better run along, eh? "'If you wouldn't mind.' "'and I'm sure a lot of paperwork has accumulated in my office, "'so if you'd send someone to fetch it, I would be obliged.' "'Vimes shut the door behind him, a little harder than necessary. "'Gods, it made him livid, the way Vetinari turned him on and off like a switch, "'and had as much natural gratitude as an alligator. "'The patrician relied on Vimes doing his job, knew he'd do his job, "'and that was the extent of his thoughts on the matter. "'Well, one day Vimes would... 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 Bloody well do his job, of course, because he didn't know how to do anything else. But realising that made it all the worse. Outside the palace, the fog was thick and yellow. Vimes nodded to the guards on the door and looked out at the clinging, swirling clouds. It was almost a straight line to the watchhouse in Pseudopolis Yard, and the fog had brought early night to the city. Not many people were on the streets. They stayed indoors, barring the windows against the damp shreds that seemed to leak in everywhere. Yes. Empty streets, a chilly night, dampness in the air. Only one thing was needed to make it perfect. He sent the sedan man on home and walked back to one of the guards. You're Constable Lucker, aren't you? Yes, sir, says Samuel. What size boots do you take? Lucker looked panicky. What, sir? It's a simple question, man. Seven and a half, sir. From old plugger in New Cobblers, the cheap ones? Yes, sir. "'Can't have a man guarding the palace in cardboard boots,' said Vimes, with mock cheerfulness. 
Off with them, constable. You can have mine. They've still got wyvern, well, whatever it is wyverns do, on them, but they'll fit you. Don't stand there with your mouth open. Give me your boots, man. You can keep mine, Vimes added. I've got lots. The constable watched in frightened astonishment as Vimes pulled on the cheap pair and stood upright, stamping a few times with his eyes shut. Ah, he said. I'm in front of the palace, right? Uh, yes, sir. You've just come out of it, sir. It's this big building here. Ah, said Vimes brightly. But I'd know I was here, even if I hadn't. Uh, it's the flagstones, said Vimes. They're an unusual size and slightly dished in the middle. Hadn't you noticed? Your feet, lad, that's what you'll have to learn to think with. The bemused constable watched him disappear into the fog, stamping happily. Corporal the Right Honourable the Earl of Onk Nobby Nobbs pushed open the watchhouse door and staggered inside. Sergeant Colon looked up from the desk and gasped. You okay, Nobby? he said, hurrying around to support the swaying figure. It's terrible, Fred. Terrible. Here, take a seat. You're all pale. I've been elevated, Fred, moaned Nobby. Nasty. Did you see who did it? Nobby wordlessly handed him the scroll Dragon King of Arms had pressed into his hand and flopped back. He took a tiny length of homemade cigarette from behind his ear and lit it with a shaking hand. I don't know, I'm sure, he said. You do your best, you keep your head down, you don't make any trouble, and then something like this happens to you. Colon read the scroll slowly, his lips moving when he came to difficult words like and and the. Nobby, you've read this? It says, you're a lord? The old man said they'd have to do a lot of checking up, but he thought it was pretty clear what with the ring and all. Fred, what am I going to do? Sit back and eat off a in plates, I should think. That's just it, Fred. There's no money, no big house, no land, not a brass farthing. What, nothing? Not a dried pea, Fred. I thought all the upper crust had pots of money. Well, I'm the crust on its uppers, Fred. I don't know anything about lording. I don't want to have to wear posh clothes and go to hunt bulls and all that stuff. Sergeant Colon sat down beside him. You never suspected you'd got any posh connections? Well, my cousin Vincent once got done for indecently assaulting the Duchess of Quirm's housemaid. Chambermaid or scullery maid? Scullery maid, I think. Probably doesn't count, then. Does anyone else know about all this? Well, she did. And she went and told... I mean about your lordshipping. Only Mr Vimes. Well, there you are, said Sergeant Colon, handing him back the scroll. You don't have to tell anyone. Then you don't have to go around wearing golden trousers. And you needn't hunt balls unless you've lost them. You just sit there and I'll fetch you a cup of tea. How about that? We'll see it through, don't you worry. You're a tough, Fred. That makes two of us, my lord, Colon waggled his eyebrows. Get it? <laughs> Get it? Don't, Fred, said Nobby wearily. The watchhouse door opened. Fog poured in like smoke. In the midst of it were two red eyes. The parting shreds revealed the massive figure of a golem. <laughs> said Sergeant Colon. The golem held up its slate. I have come to you. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've, uh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I can see that, said Colin. 
Dorfel turned the slate round. The other side read, I give myself up for murder. It was I who killed the old priest. The crime is solved. Colon, once his lips had stopped moving, scurried behind the suddenly very flimsy defences of his desk and scrabbled through the papers there. "'You keep it covered, Nobby,' he said. "'Make sure it don't run off.' "'Why is it going to run off?' said Nobby. Sergeant Colon found a relatively clean piece of paper. "'Well, well, well, uh, I, uh, well, I guess I'd better... Uh, 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 "'What's your name?' The golem wrote, "'Dorful.' By the time he was on the brass bridge, medium-sized cobbles of the rounded sort they called catheads, quite a few missing, Vimes was already beginning to wonder if he'd done the right thing. Autumn fogs were always thick, but he'd never known it this bad. The pall muffled the sounds of the city and turned the brightest lights into dim glows, even though in theory the sun hadn't set yet. He walked along by the parapet. A squat, glistening shape loomed in the fog. It was one of the wooden hippos, some distant ancestor of Roderick or Keith. There were four on either side, all looking out towards the sea. Vimes had walked past them thousands of times. They were old friends. He'd often stood in the lee of one on chilly nights when he was looking for somewhere out of trouble. That's what it used to be like, wasn't it? It hardly seemed that long ago, just a handful of them in the watch, staying out of trouble. And then Carrot had arrived, and suddenly the narrow circuit of their lives had opened up, and there were nearly thirty men, oh, including trolls and dwarfs and miscellaneous, in the watch now, and they didn't skulk around keeping out of trouble, they went looking for trouble, and they found it everywhere they looked. Funny that. As Vetinari had pointed out in that way of his, the more policemen you had, the more crimes seemed to be committed. But the watch was back and out there on the streets, and if they weren't actually as good as detritus at kicking ass, they were definitely prodding buttock. He lit a match on a hippo's toenail and cupped his hand around it to shield his cigar from the damp. These murders now. No one would care if the watch didn't care. Two old men murdered on the same day, nothing stolen. He'd corrected himself, nothing apparently stolen. Of course, the thing about things that were stolen was that the bloody things weren't there. They almost certainly hadn't been fooling around with other people's wives. They probably couldn't remember what fooling around was. One spent his time among old religious books. The other, for God's sakes was an authority on the aggressive uses of baking. People would probably say they had lived blameless lives. But Vimes was a policeman. No one lived a completely blameless life. It might be just possible, by lying very still in a cellar somewhere, to get through a day without committing a crime, but only just, and even then you were probably guilty of loitering. Anyway, Angua seemed to have taken this case personally. She always had a soft spot for the underdog. So did Vimes. You had to, not because they were pure or noble, because they weren't. You had to be on the side of underdogs, because they weren't overdogs. Everyone in this city looked after themselves. That's what the guilds were for. People banded together against other people. The guilds looked after you from the cradle to the grave, or in the case of the assassins, to other people's graves. They even maintained the law, or at least they had done after a fashion. Thieving without a licence was punishable by death for the first offence. The Ankh-Morpork view of crime and punishment was that the penalty for the first offence should prevent the possibility of a second offence. The Thieves' Guild saw to that, 
The arrangement sounded unreal, but it worked. It worked like a machine. That was fine, except for the occasional people who got crushed in the wheels. The damp cobbles felt reassuringly real under his souls. God, he'd missed this. He'd patrolled alone in the old days. When there was just him and the stones glistened around 3am, it all seemed to make sense somehow. He stopped. Around him the world became a crystal of horror, the special horror that has nothing to do with fangs or ichor or ghosts, but has everything to do with the familiar becoming unfamiliar. Something fundamental was wrong. It took a few dreadful seconds for his mind to supply the details of what his subconscious had noticed. There had been five statues along the parapet on this side. But there should have been four. He turned very slowly and walked back to the last one. It was a hippo, all right. So was the next one. There was graffiti on it. Nothing supernatural had Zaz is a Wonka scrawled on it. It seemed to him that it didn't take quite so long to get to the next one, and when he looked at it, two red points of light flared in the fog above him. Something big and dark leapt down, knocked him to the ground, and disappeared into the gloom. Vimes struggled to his feet, shook his head, and set off after it. No thought was involved. It is the ancient instinct of terriers and policemen to chase anything that runs away. And as he ran, he felt automatically for his bell, which would summon other watchmen. But the commander of the watch didn't carry a bell. Commanders of the watch were on their own.